Welcome to Sharing the Spectrum, an Autism Canada podcast, an engaging series of discussions about relevant topics, including parenting, relationships, employment, education, nutrition, and so much more. We look forward to introducing you to people from our ASD community and sharing their perspectives on life and autism. And now, please enjoy this episode of Sharing the Spectrum, an Autism Canada podcast. Uh, welcome, everyone, to our first, the first in our series of back to school uh, conversations with our amazing panel. My name is Julie Perkis and I work with Autism Canada and I'm going to be the moderator this evening. So I will be taking your questions and just so everyone knows, we're really lucky to be able to run these free educational sessions um, because of the kindness of our, uh, our panel here, but also because of the donations and the generosity of the donors uh, that contributed uh, to the event this evening. So for those of you who did take, make a donation, thank you so much. We very much appreciate it. And if anyone would like to, after the event, you're welcome to go and make a donation uh, on the Autism Canada website at www.autismcanada.org. Thank you again for those of you who did make a donation. Um, okay, so let's get into it. I wanna introduce the panel. Um, because these are three amazing, amazing people that I love working with and who are so, um, oh, I'm just going to let somebody in here, and are so um, great with respect to this topic. Uh, uh, the first person I'm going to introduce is Bruce Petherick. Bruce, you, well, everyone knows who Bruce is. He can wave. Uh, Bruce is an autistic advocate and a member of the Autism Canada Family Services team. Bruce is also a musician, a father to two neurodivergent kids, and an educator. And um, I highly suggest you check out Bruce's website. It's www.brucepetherick.com. If you're into music, it's amazing and you will love what you hear. Kara uh, Diamond is here as well. Kara is a late diagnosed autistic advocate. She's the author of The Autism Lens. She's a teacher of a, to autistic children in a large Canadian school board. And she's a teacher instructor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, where she teaches a graduate course in mental health and special education for beginner teachers. Huh. She also hosts a great podcast, which everyone should check out. It's called Autistic Tidbits and Tangents, and I will send a link out tomorrow in a follow-up email. And you can learn more about Kara at her website, karadiamond.com. And finally, we have Dominique Chabot. Dominique is Autism Canada's Family Services Manager and one of my amazing colleagues. She is a parent to two boys on the autism spectrum and has plentiful experience with navigating the school system for both of her boys. In fact, she was just telling us that she's just in the throes of preparing for back to school, so she'll have lots to contribute this evening. So welcome to the three of you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, you know, we all know that back to school can be a really tough transition after this completely unregulated uh, time of summer and you know, with no, I know in my house, there's been no um, sort of schedule, no routine, everyone's going a bit crazy. So um, looking forward to uh, talking about how we can sort of get things back to back to what we need to do to get back to school in September. So at this point, I'm just going to hand it over to the panel. And uh, again, please add your questions in the chat, and I will be sure that they get answered. Thank you very much Thanks. for being here. Thanks, Jill. Dominique, I'm so excited to hear about some of the prep you've been doing with your boys. Right. Uh, so we go to the French uh, Catholic school board, obviously, my, my two boys, one who is going to be 17 in a few weeks, and the other one's going to be 10 in a few weeks. 
Um, and they start on uh, Tuesday. So oh, wow. we actually took a, a vacation um, at the end of July. And since we've been back, we, we were gone for a week. And since we've been back, it was all about, it's been all about prepping. Now with the two kids, they are mm -hmm. on two completely opposite sides of the spectrum. So prepping for one is very different than prepping for the other. So it's a juggling act and it's got to be an all hands on deck kind of environment. So yeah, it, it's it's quite tricky. That's such a good reminder though, that even, even the recommendations that, you know, Bruce and I make, it's everything's so individualized and knowing your child and, uh, you know, that sort of informed trial and error for, for what prep needs to be done is, is important. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I don't know if you want to know some of the you know, tips and tricks that I have to offer. Yes, yes, please. Okay. All right. So a little bit of background. Kalem is that my oldest, he is in a um, specialized uh, program at our local high school. It's a very, very good price. My old high school, um, they've always had a, um, a, a section or a wing from the, from the school to uh, teach, um, you know, a, a neurodivergence. And it's, I'm so glad he was able to attend this program. Um, and my youngest, Samuel, who is uh, going into grade five, is, is very, um, and he's very independent, but struggles with anxiety and mm -hmm. fidgets, and he's also ADHD. Um, so he's got, uh, he's mainstream, but he gets a lot of support on the side. So knowing ahead of time who your teachers are going to be or who your kids' teachers are going to be is very important. And for Kalem, um, this is a, a, an interesting year for him because his teacher that he's had for the past three years is now on mat leave. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, and his class has grown. So there's going to be, there are going to be extra educators in the classroom. So I was, I'm one of those parents that I push to get this information mm -hmm. before, um, you know, whether it's like the last week of school, if, if they know. And they're at a, they're at a point now where they know, okay, Dominic's going to be asking who's going to be Kelly's <laughs> teachers just to set them up. So his classroom has always been the same, um, but the teachers are different. And it's important to know a little bit about them. Like I always ask, you know, what is, uh, you know, the educator's, um, you know, uh, favorite song and her favorite movie, just so Ooh. I could share that with my son. So he has that um, immediate connection because I love that. And it's important because it offers him that stepping stool for that social interaction with the new educator. The mm -hmm. routines might change and everything else, but knowing ahead of time what that educator likes um, kind of gives him that opportunity to have a conversation. Yes. So that is that flowed fairly well. Um, for my youngest, it's a bit more difficult because he is streamlined um, or mainstream, I should say. And um, his uh, special educator is, has always been the same person since he was in kindergarten, and uh, which is fantastic. And I'm so glad that she's not retiring for the next two years because he's still there for another two years. But it's um, it's a very difficult uh, grade. Grade five is, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's very academic. It's no longer, you know, learn through play. It's hands-on. It's theoretical. And it requires a lot of concentration. So... Mm -hmm. Um, knowing that his teacher is someone who he knows in a small school of 300 kids, uh, <laughs> 
he knows her through a different program that she taught. It was art and he loves art and he's very good at art. So that was that connection that I was able to offer him in order to be excited to start with mm-hmm. this new teacher. She is now going to be his main teacher. So it's to find out, you know, to, to take that extra leap and to find out what those outside interests are and be able to um, in, incorporate that in your like getting ready routine for when school starts to give them something to look forward to, but some familiarity. I think it's really important. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. I uh, I was just thinking as you were speaking too. Um, one thing I think is always important to to tell our our autistic children is like everyone is nervous the first day. Mm-hmm. Everyone. There's a great book that primary teachers always read called First Day Jitters, and by the end of the book, you find out it's actually about the teacher being nervous about going to school. Uh, but that's a good read aloud for young ones if uh, if this is something that you're concerned about. And absolutely. Um, And, you know, when you were talking about the teacher's favorites, I was thinking, how often do teachers do things like what, uh, like, what did you do this summer? Or what are your favorite things? And tell me about your family. So even having those conversations with kids can get them primed to think about things they'll be asked to do in the first couple of weeks where it's really getting to know everyone in the class. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that it's really important to kind of give, you know, because these kids require some structure and they, you know, changes, changes isn't always easy. And by giving him, by giving both my kids a little bit of, um, uh, you know, a little like tidbits of information that would benefit them in maybe lessening some of their anxiety is Mm -hmm. so important. They know where their lockers are. They know where their classrooms are going to be. That's always Um, you know, something that I focused on as a parent since the get-go was give me a PowerPoint, let me know ahead of time where his class is going to be, the closest washroom, where his desk might be, where his locker is going to be. These are really important tips. And if the, if the teachers are willing to provide this information to you for, to better help your child transition to the next grade, go for it. There's nothing wrong with asking. And you can actually implement that into the IEP or the IPRC for the following year as well. Oh, great idea. Bruce, you went, you, you took your children on a high school tour recently. I I was just going to say that. So (laughs) I have a 16 year old and a 12 year old and um, they, we, we, we've moved provinces. You, you will hear the seagulls and the ocean in the background. I'm now in, in Vancouver. And so we're in a completely new province, a completely new system. Everything's different. And when we found out that we got into the school that's, that's nearby, we contacted the principal and said, like, is there any chance for us to meet? And he basically said to us, oh, yeah, just come up on um, just come on this day. Um, I'll give you a map. You can just explore the school. And, and I kind of thought, hmm. Oh, that's probably not as um, structured as we wanted. But in fact, he came out, gave the kids their classroom schedule, their subjects, the names of their teachers, and then just handed us a map and said, go for it. So we spent half an hour exploring this brand new school mm. and he, and both of the kids are over the moon excited. They, they're, they're, that's it's just just amazing. Um, I actually have two. Sorry, as you as we were talking, I was going. Oh, and you have to ask a question. And you ask a question. Um, Dominic, your point about giving finding out from the teacher what's important to them, I think, is a reminder for teachers that this first day of school is not just a one way process. It's not about the teacher learning about the class, but also should be the class learning about the teacher. So I think that's a that's a 
a really good, really good tip and, and an encouragement for especially autistic students who we tend to not have great social skills, tasking the children with finding out something about their teacher in the first couple of weeks is a really good little structured tip. Get them out of their shell and things. Especially um, if you can give the, the teacher a heads up. Heads like, up. You know? Sorry, yes. <laughs> yes. A note in that first week. But we'll, <laughs> we can talk about that in the, the next yeah. session, what to do that first week. <laughs> and my third question, or my second question, um, Tony, when you talked about your youngest, and I'll share, she'll say Sammy just because that's how, how I know him. Yes. Yeah, um, when you said they were going to grade five and, the, and the, it's it's different, it's more academic, what have you done to prepare them for this? <laughs> Sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> She's okay. <laughs> Um, what have I done to prepare him for the academic piece, you mean? It, well, it's more, I know you really well, so I kind of know the answer to this question, but let's share it with our <laughs> listeners. Um, like, how have you prepared Sammy for this difference? Because you're quite right. The sort of grade, depending on where you are, grade one to three, grade one to four is one thing. And then like grade five to eight or nine is another. And then you got the, the last three, which is another. How have you prepared them for this leap? between level one and level two? And I, this is such a, an important question. I'm so glad you asked it because obviously every student is unique and it's not going to be the same across the board. But for Sammy, who is quite vocal um, and, and verbal, and he's very good at um, expressing his, um, his joy when something goes well, when he understands something, but he is not good at communicating when he's struggling with something and he doesn't necessarily understand. And the benefits of having, um, you know, an educator who um, it's in French, we call it le retrait partiel. So when the teacher feels that Sammy has too much anxiety or needs to exert this energy, she'll summon the educator to come and get him. And then they go run the track or they do some one-on-one -on -one to exert some of that energy so he can come back fully focused. As he gets older, he doesn't, he's realizing that he's different. And because he's in a mainstream uh, class, um, it's obviously, it, it's obvious. And so he's refusing to ask for help or for that time out or for that opportunity to go and exert that energy so he can come back more focused. So really what I'm trying to teach him is communicating. It's, it's all fine and dandy to have that regular educator know what the signs are, but he needs to start verbalizing that. He needs to verbalize if he's not understanding something or if he's too, if, you know, his it's sensory overload, um, he needs to know what his boundaries are so he can communicate his needs. And that is, that is the route to being able to better function in the classroom, better understand what's being taught and better interact with, you know, whether it's group work or with the teacher. So really what I'm doing to prepare him is learn how to communicate your needs. It's so mm -hmm. whether they're good or bad, whether they're good or bad, if you're okay and you understand something, share that with your teacher. But if you're struggling with something, share that with your teacher. And that's what's important to us. Mm -hmm. And there are so many ways to do that 
as a bridge towards being able to say it. Sometimes it can be really hard to say it. You could work with the teacher to have some sort of queuing system with post-it. So if there's a post-it in the right-hand corner of the desk, you know, like having some sort of secret code between the two of them, you know? Yeah. But it's an age where they need to, he needs to learn how to better communicate his needs. Otherwise he won't, and it'll just cause him to fall behind. And how is that beneficial for anybody? Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. There's also no acknowledgement that, that actually I've gone through this stage exactly with both my kids who are kind of like a couple of years older than Sammy, but it's, it also, as they get older, that request for help is more and more difficult as they start to mature and, and becoming, you know, more and more and more independent as people. But it's like there is that um, there is that difference, you know, and, and we've we've the, the way we've approached it for our kids is to acknowledge the difference, which which I know Dominic, you also do. Um, but it's also to be like be proud of the difference, but also you do need help in this, this, and this. Mm. And to point out that perhaps Jimmy or Jenny needs help in athletics or needs help in a whole bunch of different ways. And, and everybody needs help and not to be ashamed of that. And, but that's a difficult, that's a, <laughs> that's a difficult point. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I have lots of thoughts about how teachers could do a better job with that uh, and, and structuring that environment for that. I've also, I don't know, Bruce, maybe you have some thoughts on this, but I've heard from some of my older students that it's easier come high school because they can email a teacher. It takes off the pressure of the face-to-face ask for help. Mm. Um, And so sometimes having other ways of communicating can be really helpful. Definitely. Um, And unfortunately, though, that removal of the face-to-face makes some things a lot harder as well because it's it's often... um, you know perfectly well. It's it's often I need help right now, not mm-hmm. telling me in four or five days or I'm sorry, four or five hours. Oh yes, this is what you need to do to get through this problem. Um, but there are yes, of course there are there are times where it's just easy to to ask for the e- the email. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we do have a couple of questions in the chat. Do you mind if I interrupt here and and, and send those over? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first one is from Sarah C or Sarah. I think it's Sarah C, but it could be Sarah. Sorry if I got that wrong. Um, hello, my ASD child is entering grade five at their elementary school. Next year is middle school. I have zero success in gaining cooperation with their school team, and I'm really hoping this year is different. How do I best set up my child for success in an environment that I feel has never supported them? And I say that as last year, their IEP identified modified learning and the teacher kept them on regular work and my child grew incredibly frustrated and lost all confidence. And I think we have Sarah here. I'm going to, Sarah, Sarah, I'm going to unmute you for a second, or you can unmute yourself for a second. Did that address your question? Yes. Um, I myself am an educator. I'm an education assistant. I have years of working um, in behavior intervention. I, I know my daughter's learning style. I know her strengths. I have 100% success with her learning at home. Um, I obviously can't just teach her at home, so she does go to public school. And she's never had a full-time EA. Last year, she had an EA for three hours a week. And she's 
I mean, it breaks my heart because she's aware she's different. She's aware she's not as smart, doesn't catch on as quick. And I've tried to send the worksheets, the tools. Um, she has a little toolkit for herself because what I'm doing is raising her to rely on herself to take care of the needs she needs. So she has her little toolkit and she has her calculator, you know, all these tools all identified in her IEP and the teacher, actually I might tear up, the teacher didn't let her use them. And when we were sitting at the IEP meeting at the end of the year, and I was talking about my concerns with what I've noticed and the work level, the teacher actually said, oh, I didn't realize she was supposed to be modified. And it's kind of heartbreaking when you've gone 10 months of grade four and your child hasn't had any work that is appropriate for them. All of it's too challenging. And so I just, grade five is that year where they springboard into middle school. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I need those tips and tricks on how to work with the school on, yeah. on best supporting her. First of all, thank you so much for the work that you do every day. The school systems could not work without people like you. Yeah. Um, it breaks my heart to hear stories like that. Uh, but I think it really highlights the need as parents and as students to advocate with teachers and make sure they know what's in that document. It is a legal document. They are supposed to do it. And if they're not doing it, you, certainly you can be in touch. Like if you, if you have talked to the teacher and it's still not being done, talk to the principal. Yeah. If it's still not being done, ask to have a meeting with the superintendent and, and all of the relevant people. But I would say probably that first week of school, um, send a letter from your child or self-advocacy tool. Like I've got a couple on my website that are free that just so, sort of says how I learn best and, and different tips about the student's learning style and preferences um, and and make sure that the teacher is aware of that. Now, the teacher might not be available to meet or to take a phone call, but certainly sending a note or an email with that information in that first week really helps because um, they will be taking the next few weeks to get to know, you know, the 25, 30 students in the class. Um, but yeah, when you get that IEP back, obviously you have input as a parent Um make sure that you think all of the suggested accommodations are relevant to your child and that you know what they mean. Um, perhaps even think about inviting the child, you know, run it by the team, but invite the child to the IEP meeting, like the review, uh, and talk about, you know, you are entitled to these things and make sure your child knows as well. And so everyone is in the room at that time knowing, okay, in math class, you can use the calculator and you can, you know, in language, your teacher will scribe for you on tests or whatever is on that document. Um, I would say like, try and try and have like a collaborative team meeting. Um, and that, that's where I would start. Dominique. I've been in a very similar situation with my oldest um, I, back in the day when he was quite young and he was in the wrong school, but I ended up getting SIAC involved and one of the, one of the cool things about SEAC, and that's our uh, special educational advisory committee, um, you can find them on the government website, Sarah. Um, they um, basically acted as a mediator between the parent and the team. And 
I don't know about you, but when it comes to IEPs and as strong as I am of an advocate in my job and in my role, when I'm hearing that my, my child is not able to do A, B, C, and D, I just sit there and cry and I can't communicate um, as I would, and you know, in a situation like this or from a professional, I just cry because I don't like hearing that my kid can't do something where I know that he's in school so he can learn that he can, and I know he can. So by getting somebody else involved, whether it's your, your um, I don't know whether you have a caseworker through developmental services or anything, you can ask for that person to sit in on these you know, during these IEP meetings and help advocate for you and your child. Um, and then that also puts a little bit of pressure on the team as well, knowing that, you know what, you mean business and you want what's best for your child. If I would strongly recommend that if you think your child is old enough to be part of that meeting mm -hmm. and if not to give input, but this is a way of you asking questions, IEP, asking your child, do you understand what, what they're talking about? Does that make sense to you? It's 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 cueing the team to 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 making sure that they're communicating not only with just you, but with the child. Because I know this is a huge problem with with IEPs, IPPs. Um also, and from a teaching perspective, I hate saying this. Go over the head if you're not happy within the first couple of weeks and i don't mean this this doesn't mean to like get the teacher in trouble but it may be the teacher is struggling or not quite knowing and they need some support and teachers we're sometimes frightened to ask for support for help too right definitely um we're going to talk in depth about IEPs and yeah. meetings for IEPs on September 13th. We're going to do a third session just to keep, um, you know, sort of stick to our topics here. So, Sarah, I don't know if you're available to come then as well. And I'm sure you know a lot of IEP, about IEPs being a teacher. But we're going to talk very in depth about, about these things then as well. Um, so hopefully that sort of gives you some ideas to start with. And, um, you know, you're always welcome to, to email info at autismcanada.org and Dominique and Bruce will be your people. So um, if you have other questions, I just kind of want to keep things moving because we have a limited <laughs> amount of time. I want to make sure your question's answered, but are you good? Are you good with that? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Because we do have a couple more here. So I'm just going to move on. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, okay. So the next one is, um, this question is for Dominique. How do you help your children to prepare for switching from English in the summertime to French during the school year? My son has a very good understanding, but needs prompting to express himself in French. I think that's a unique situation and I'd be happy to elaborate offline if, if you want to email me as well for tips and tricks, but essentially we're a bilingual family. So we are fluent and my oldest is more French than English, and my youngest is more English than French. So mm -hmm. it's a matter of juggling both languages throughout the household, you know, all like throughout the whole course of the summer. My youngest is in a um, in a French um, camp over the summer months, so he's keeping it up that way as well. But we just we just stay on top of it. It's important for for them to um, to, to be bilingual for so many reasons, but it's, we need to, as parents, we need to maintain it as well. So I speak French at home. My husband speaks English. We're Franglia in this household. The dog too, she's bilingual. <laughs> 
So Daniel, feel free to reach out to Dominique directly at info at autismcanada.org. Yeah. Um, okay, here's another one from Andrea. Hello, my little one is going into JK. He has had success with full-time daycare. Is there anything extra that we should be doing at home to help with the transition to school? I know we have a lot to talk about on this topic. And then the other one, um, I also have a JK who has had success with daycare. Is it practical to expect an IEP in JK? So there's two for you. My dog is going to bark, so I'm going to mute. Um, just before we start, can we have somebody from not Ontario explain what a JK is? Junior kindergarten. Yeah, I was guessing that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so if if you're if you have provided the school board already, I'm answering the second question first, and then I will do the 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 previous one. If your child has an identification, you have the paperwork, you've shared it with the school, you will be going through something called the IPRC process in Ontario, which is the Identification Placement and Review Committee, but all, all provinces will have some something similar to this, where the school board accepts the identification, and after that, once they have been formally identified within the school board as having an exceptionality, they are legally entitled to an IEP and an IEP has to be developed and it has to include a transition plan. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you do those things, okay, I would be proactive then and send it or hand it to the principal, like give it with attention. Um, once they have this document, it has to be like, it, the well, it, they might not get the IEP right away. You have to have the IPRC first. So I would email them a request um, for, uh, the I are you in Ontario? Actually, I should check that first. Hi there. Yeah, we are in Ontario, and we've been emailing back and forth all summer for a transition plan with no success. Um, so I'm just checking in to sort of see if my expectations are realistic. Uh, they are realistic. So what you need to put in writing is that you are requesting an IPRC, attach the paperwork. Um, uh, because they have to respond to you. I think it's within two weeks. Once, in, if you if you request an IPRC in writing, they have to respond to you in two weeks and give you a meeting within like a specific time frame. Um, so that will probably get the ball rolling. Thank you. No problem. Paper trail is so important, Katrina, and for everyone on this call, um, it's in not only to. It's not to be malicious. It's only so you could refer back to it should something slip through the cracks because it does happen when you've got teachers dealing with 25 or 30 students in their classroom. Um, you know, some things could be slipping through the cracks. Just, I don't know about you, but I've got, you know, it might each of my child have like their own yearly folder and I emails and whatever that comes through for them. I keep it uh, and every year I file it. It's kind of like your income tax. So you keep all your receipts, keep all of your paper trail just so you can refer to it um, down the road because you're probably going to need to. And if if you are finding, this is just a general tip, if you're finding that talking with the principal isn't getting you anywhere, you can email the superintendent. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't jump the gun. I would start by trying to have a positive rapport relationship with the principal. But if at that point you still have concerns, um, then definitely you can go up the chain. Mm -hmm. It's also, again, I'm going to defend the school just for a second here. This is the absolute worst period for admin these next couple of weeks. Yep. They've all come back from summer holidays. They're all trying to get some things. So be a little patient, but 
It's, this is the advocate and me going, I will give you this much. And, but if you don't get back to me in this much, I'm going to like go full bore and, and give me sending emails to everybody. Um, it, as, as Kara's pointing out all the time, this is legal stuff and schools cannot not respond to a request, cannot do the IPRC, cannot, if, if they have accepted a student with a learning difference, they have to provide an IPP, IEP across the country. And so this is a, we can't let people fall through the cracks on both ends, from the teaching perspective and from the parenting perspective. Yeah, passion. And we are going to cover transition plans and all that when we do have our um, our future our IP, um, IEP, IPP, and IPRC um, seminar on what what date is it, Julie? Again, the thirteenth of September. Okay, on mute. Yeah, yeah. Um, just uh, just a couple of comments, and then I really want to get back to that comment because the yes. the question about uh, extra help we should be doing at home with prepare yes. to prepare for the transition is sort of our big topic tonight. So yeah. just um, just. To note, thanks, Jamie. You usually have your IPPRC done within the first month of school. That's great. So I think that's pretty common. That's this. That's the. That's the experience I've had as well. Um, and um, uh, Marika, you're right. Uh, education degrees don't necessarily prepare <laughs> prepare teachers for IPPs and kids with complex learning needs. It is tricky, and that's why we have our experts here tonight so that we can share some of their um, information with you. So let's just get back quickly to, is there anything extra that we should be doing at home to help with the transition to school? And this is from a parent with a child going into JK junior kindergarten. Um, but also, I mean, I think this is an important topic for all kids and I'm gonna mute myself again. Since, since it's JK, uh, I would say reach out to the school, see if you can do a visit before school starts officially. Uh, try and meet the teacher. If they're in, they might not be in. That's okay. But at least touring, uh, going into the kindergarten yard where you can role play playing or, or what to do if they're by themselves. Um, teach them things that they will be expected to do on their own at school. So how do they unpack their lunch and tidy up their lunch? Um, you know, and labeling the difference between snack and lunch, because I have had so many students who have eaten it all at snack time and had nothing the rest of the day and, and didn't know how to like pace the food, you know, so labels can help. Um, uh, you know, putting together a kit with fidgets that, you know, you can send them in with, but are prepared to lose because things, things go missing all the time at schools, you know, <laughs> they get lost in the playground, but, but having some sort of comfort item, small comfort item that fits in their pocket. Uh, th those would be some of the things I would say. Um, Bruce, I know we've talked a lot yeah, about this. <laughs> this and, and I think to emphasize exactly what you've just said, Kara, is like, even if you, if the school says, no, you can't come to school, practice the, practice the trip. Practice that if you're going to be, if the child is going to be walking or if you're driving or whatever way, do that. Walk to the school, um, get the get the children. And this happened. This is this is for anybody going to any school. Get them used to the environment, what it looks like, what's what they're going to see on the way. Um, again, that thing about the snack and lunch, I sniggered a little bit because it's like, I think from a teaching perspective, I think we are universally terrible at teaching children the difference between snacks and lunch. <laughs> um, and when I went to school, we actually had two, we had two snack breaks, which confused me. So practice these at home. 
practice at home at, at approximately the time if, if you can't do it exactly that they'll be happening at the school um you know say at mm-hmm. 10 10 30 we going, you're going to have a it's going to be snack time because this is what's going to happen at school and at 11 30 or one o'clock or whatever time it is this is time to have lunch and this is what you what, what should be doing so it's the setting up of these what can be actually artificial routines for anybody who's not used to it going to a school um setting up those routines um and also like i've got notes like sleep sleep yeah. yes sleep schedule thank you marika yes. hopefully i said that right uh as well mm-hmm. get it yeah practice and i need to too because i i've gotten into some very <laughs> bad sleep habits so time for me to start transitioning too <laughs> So that's a good week or two weeks before school starts. Start getting your routine down. Walk, practice the walk. Get get your sleep schedule back on. Great. Okay. Um, Dominique, mark your snack. Uh, to be honest, what has what I'm doing right now, and like, forgive me if I start yawning in the next 30 minutes, and this will kind of segue into. Um, self-care for parents. Mm. So the last two weeks, um, my youngest, who is really hard to push in the morning, especially he takes medication too, and he's not a big eater first thing in the morning, but we've been getting up at 6.30. Um, we've been getting dressed at 6.45. Um, we've been sitting down to have breakfast at seven. We've taken our medication at 7.15. We've made sure that our, you know, he helps me pack his lunch and his snacks at 7.30. And by a quarter to eight, we're out the door. And I usually take him because he's been going to camp. So these past two weeks, I've been taking him a little earlier. They open at 5 a.m. So there's like, it's not a problem for that, but it's to get him into that waking up and let's, let's do this routine. And I think that by doing it, and I need two weeks, not just for him, but for me, because I need, I'm getting up with him in the mornings, you know, when school starts. So it's, it's a good routine for myself as well. But this is so important because with him getting up so early, um, he's going to bed at a reasonable time. So we're doing that nighttime routine where after, you know, now, right now he's reading a book. So after supper, usually when he would do his homework, um, we're reading a book for 30 minutes, you know, we're playing a game or we just we're at the kitchen table where he would typically do his homework. So we're getting that back into a routine. So it's just the, you know, it's, it's, it's really a routine, however you want to set that up, whatever is closest to getting ready for school and getting ready for that nighttime routine, just try to keep it consistent, make sure it's all hands on deck, that everyone's participating and that you keep it slow and steady until school starts. And then everyone's going to be back into this regular routine. And this is where mommies and daddies are going to need to rest <laughs> hard because it's hard hence why I'm like so tired and I want to yawn right now because it wasn't really morning but essentially that's we earn we earn the self-care and we can talk about that uh, once Julie I don't know whether Julie wants to add any more questions from the chat I, I do have one but I do think that self-care is really important and I, I really do appreciate the tips on routine because it's a it's an issue at my house and it two weeks tomorrow they start 
here in uh, Toronto. And I know it's going to be a fight to start getting them up early because right now I have a 15 year old who likes to sleep until one o'clock every day. <laughs> so um, we will be uh, we will be working on that at our house as well. Um, Emily sent a note saying hello from PEI. Oh, PEI, we love you. Currently, EAs in our public school system do not have to know about autism and certainly not experience with children with neurodiversity as per union agreements. As EAs can transfer any time, you can have many different ones within that first month, et cetera. Would it be more successful to advocate to the school board or to the unions? Or to the premier or to everybody. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I always take the approach um, of advocating within your school first, especially for your particular child. I don't know that school boards are going to do anything different. I don't know that unions are going to do anything different. But I think if you if you in like if you your child has a dedicated EA, invite them to the meeting as well. Like we often forget to have our paraprofessionals at these case conferences and they like we want to also be building their capacity and drawing on their expertise and uh, and they should also be just as informed as the teacher about what your child is entitled to and what your child's learning needs are. So even if that's like develop a cheat sheet of, you know, these are the strategies that work for my child, give the EA as well as the teacher one of those self-advocacy tools um, that I described um, earlier. You know, I, I think we we have to, um, you know... <laughs> I hate that it falls to parents and families and children to educate adults because I think educators should just expect and be ready to welcome all children, expect that we will have them all in our rooms. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not there yet. I hope we are someday. Emily, does that help? It does. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, the, yeah, they're, they're always at the meetings um, and, and, Thankfully, the school is very receptive and open to how they can um, assist. And when the principal said it's usually the parents that can advocate the best to a school uh, board, then that's when you know that the principal doesn't even have very much, uh, you know, influence in some of these changes that need to be done. And luckily, we have a school board trustee election coming up that I think I'm going to be running in just so I can you know, get in there because wonderful. They're very open for but when I heard that it's uh, union, a lot of union stuff, I was like, okay, well, how how can we get this better? So we're second mm -hmm. highest right in Canada for autism rates here. So um, anything we can change for the best, uh, you know, it can just be a plan for others too, right? So I think running for trustee is a great, great way to do it. The trustees do have like a ton of power. I, they run the school boards essentially. So hmm. that would be a good place to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but thank nice. you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Emily. That's great. Um, just quickly, I will uh, look through the questions again, but it looks like we've covered everything. Oh, a visual countdown for school is a great idea. Um, right, Vis everyone? That's a great idea, yeah. Visual supports are great for everything. Everything. <laughs> um, snack and lunch. Yes, mark your snacks and your lunch. My daughter... Uh, 
Yes, Marie Kay, you're right about the training. Um, Nafisa says, my daughter in Calgary, Alberta was in a special needs class since early intervention and she's severely delayed with other issues. She took a year off due to COVID and now getting back into school. Turns out we lost all our supports and she would be in a normal mainstream school sitting in grade five with other students. They said they would be providing a full-time EA to sit with her. I'm quite nervous how things are going to pan out. She doesn't sit, listen, or even read or write. Any tips for... For Nafisa. I'm going to say we always have to assume competency. I think we can. <laughs> your daughter, just like in the email, yes. Um, your daughter's had a rough last couple of years. All students have had a ridiculously rough last couple of years because of COVID. The teachers have had a rough, a rough couple of years. This this is going to be our first time of coming back with no restrictions completely. Uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of kids. We said last year that a whole bunch of kids would be turning up for the first time. Actually, it's, I think this year is going to be a bigger number of, of kids coming back with no restrictions. It's going to be difficult for everyone. And I think it's just you have to be as supportive as possible of your child. You have to be supportive as possible of the school and the EA. Make sure they're informed of everything that you, you can you can tell them. Um, because I I sincerely hope your child is going to shine and is going to, with the supports, um, going to shine in school and learn all those things that, that they are required to learn. They I'm sorry, they want to learn. My apologies, not required. Kara, you you I know you want to say something. A bunch of things. Uh, so some, <laughs> some I was going to say for next week, but I'll, I'll briefly say like it is going to be exhausting for you and it's going to be exhausting for your child and make sure at the end of the day, your child has lots of downtime um, when they come back. Um, it can take like it can take a whole month to really f- get classes in the routine of things. I do think it's really wonderful that your child is going to have an EA because they're very hard to come by. Um, so if, if your child has a full-time EA, that's, that's a really good starting point. Um, I, you know, I would talk with the teacher or send a note about, you know, things that your child does do well. Um, you know, ask, I don't know if your child would, it it would be allowed to like walk in the back of the classroom. Like, you know, I, I really work with teachers to try and get them to understand that listening doesn't always look the same for every student. So you can maybe think about what listening does look like for your child can your child take in um, a fidget toy? Is there anything that that helps your child to to listen um, on the spot, or uh, does your child respond to things like movement breaks, um, reading and writing? I mean, teachers teachers will have more tools for those things, I think. But uh, really, really talking to them about some of like how how the environment can be adjusted for your child and if if your child needs more breaks which probably they will they will probably need breaks from the noise of the classroom from the structure of the classroom so those would be pieces I would advocate for um, and talk with your child about what they think they need if if they're able to communicate that with you yeah thank you so much Um, okay, so that, um, Jamie, great advice on a daily communication book between your support team and yourself. I think that's really helpful. I know I did that with my son. Um, uh, and then, um, right, listening and communicating to the teacher. 
that some kids listen different than others. Great point. Thank you. Let's talk about a bit about parents and self-care and how we can manage the transition because it can be really tricky and um, it's a, it's a tough time for kids and parents. So we need to take care of ourselves to make sure we're taking care of them. Let me go. Let me go. Put me in coach. (laughs) I've got a lot to offer here. Uh, And this again is trial and error. You never know as a parent, how much you can handle until you're at wit's end. And then, you know, it's, it's trial and error and you, um, you go, go, go. You're forever advocating. It's exhausting. Um, But it's, it can be, it gets better. It doesn't get easier, but it gets better. And I think that with time, what happens is you, you, you get to know your children, you get to know their routines, you get to know the teams that, that work with your kids and you have an opportunity to kind of step back and just let things happen. And like Bruce said, assume competency, assume that your kids are going to be okay. And that they can, they, you know, that they are probably a little stronger than what we give them credit for. Keeping in mind that with the pandemic, um, isolation, segregation, it's been super, super hard on them. Like it's been for us, but this is a time for us, especially this year with everything going back to normal, um, we are going to need this break because we've been nonstop for the past three years. So, um, Once this two week routine that, you know, the week or or two weeks prior to school starting, once that routine stops and school has started and you kind of get into the swing of things, please take some time as parents for yourself each and every day. And it's hard. It's hard. Mm -hmm. I get it. But if it means I, you know, I walk my oldest um, every morning I walk him to school with my dog and there are mornings where, especially in the fall where it's nice and crisp that, you know, I might take an extra 10, 15 minutes on my walk back home by myself with my music and my dog. And it's incredible what that extra time will do for me. If you have a chance, you know, if you, if you work full time and you're dropping your kid off in the morning at school, and then you're, you're doing your, you know, try to take, you know, your lunches and your breaks, but if you can on your lunch, do something good for yourself, you know, just moms can, you know, if if there's a shopper's drug mark nearby or Sephora or whatever the case is, go buy yourself something, go treat yourself to something because you deserve it. You've worked hard dads. If you could stick in, you know, if you want to take a sick day at work and do some, some golfing once the kids are back in school, because you work just as hard as mom has, you deserve it. So don't feel guilty. It's, it's so important. And it's so necessary. And if you don't take care of yourself, you're not able to care for those around you. And you got to put yourself first. It's kind of like, and I keep saying this with, you know, I use this example with our clients is um, when you're, you know, when you're flying the, the, you know, the, um, uh, who are these, the, the, who are they called? The people that work the planes. I can't fly, fly the pilots. Thank you. They're always telling you to put the mask on first before you put the mask on the others before you help the person next to you, whether it's a child or a grown up. you need to take care of yourself first so you can take care of others and just keep that, keep that visual in the back of your mind. Cause it's really important. That's my two cents. I'm just reading the comments again. Sorry, Bruce. Um, go ahead. I'll read uh, the comments sorry. <laughs> like, this is this this could be a little. Um, please take this in this in a, in, a, in a joking spirit, but it's actually quite serious. 
uh, our family have moved from another province to the West Coast, and everybody's joking about, oh, you'll be on the beach all the time, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I literally do live five minutes away from the beach, and we have just made it an intention for the family that we are trying to spend three or four evenings walking the beach. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but those timeouts, those times of, of, of walking on a beach, walking through a forest, trying, trying to getting into nature are so helpful, not only the, for the parents, but also for the children. And I think very often when we, when we start talking about um, self-care, yes, we are talking mainly about parents, but we also have to make sure the kids are self-caring after their environment, after their time at school. And I know we're going to talk a lot about this next week, actually, um, you know, what happens in your first week back at school. But this is also something that probably should be started before you get back. And in starting this, again, routine of everybody looking after themselves. I just want to remind everyone as well that we're all models for our children. So if we take care of ourselves, hopefully our children will realize that they need to do that as well you know they they're going to model they're going to do what we model for them so um you know if you uh give yourself a little treat and take care of yourself hopefully they'll do that for themselves as well um so here's something from candace the physical transition is traumatizing and i get this one because i went through this as well candace the physical transition is traumatizing every morning tears fear panic vocal objections it breaks my heart every time to see my son in such a state any guidance for improving this transition? If he has a good start, we all have a good start. Kara, you've got some good ideas <laughs> with this. Uh, well, I think part of it, first of all, is you know prepare yourself for how you're going to deal with. No, I don't want to go. Um, I and I would maybe start like obviously start talking about it now talk about the exciting things at school, maybe find out, I don't know if your child is able to verbalize or in some way communicate what their fears are, because that might be a good place to start to, to address what it is that they are anxious about um, so that you can mitigate some of those concerns. Um, hi, Kara. Hi. <laughs> I'm the Autism Canada and, and, and all of this. So thank you to everybody for having this these sessions. I, I saw it and I see it as a lifeline. Um, my son is very verbal um, and I've worked very hard over the last six years with him on, on articulating his feelings and trying to improve like you know, emotional intelligence. It's be, you all know it's complex. Um, so when we get down to the fears, a lot of it is, it, it doesn't need to be school. It could be any kind of activity, a new camp. I've tried taking him to the camps ahead of time, introducing him to people, pairing him up with, you know, a school friend, whatever it might be. But we always get this trigger reaction every time, mm -hmm. despite even though half the time he wants to be there and yeah. he knows he's going to have fun. It's, it's almost like he's getting in his own way. Like he just mm -hmm. has this massive panic reaction. And, and so, yeah, that's my biggest fears. How okay. do I get him back into this routine? Um, he's already working up the fear right now. I'd start working with him on a little bit of mindfulness every day, like different, different relaxation tools, experiment. With, like there's whole, there's so many things you can do. You can do body scans. You can do meditation, guided meditations. A lot of kids with big imaginations love guided meditations. 
where they get to imagine like, oh, you're on a magic carpet. And, you know, you tell a story and they picture it in their minds and then share the details. And, and you know, you want to teach these calming tools when they are calm because and practice them when they're calm. So then you can kind of coach them in the moment. Um, sometimes, okay, this, this isn't a recommendation for everyone, um, but sometimes, you know, making a deal that, okay, for the first day, you're just going to go for half a day and I can pick you up at lunch, you know, that can ease them in and take off some of the pressure. If you are able to do that, I know not everyone's able to do that. Um, I mean, if there's, you might not know who the teacher is yet because sometimes they don't even know really (laughs) until the the bitter end of summer. Um, But even connecting with them and seeing if they can send your child an email or a letter or a photo or a picture of the classroom, things like that to help with the transition might also help. Um, But I think starting with, let's talk about about what is scary and let's let's try and address those things and let's work on calming down and and things that you can do for yourself to make yourself feel better and lots of breaks lots of breaks my son had a teacher um in grade one and she would let him come in about 10 minutes before all the other kids to color so he could sit at his desk and draw or color because he loves drawing and um, that would allow him to get into the classroom without all the chaos sit at his desk and just have a little bit of quiet time before the day started. Um, I would highly recommend something like that. It was really helpful for him. And he was a, I mean, he was a major school refuser, but that really helped him. So that's. Oh, and something, this is more like a personal thing that works for me, but might work for a child is just talking about, you know, how you were really scared before you went to camp and then you loved it. And you know, this other time you were really scared, but then you loved it. You know, our, our feelings are not always a predictor of the future, but like in child-friendly language, you want to say like, sometimes our anxiety lies to us and our anxiety is there to protect us from things that are actually dangerous. So what are some things that are actually dangerous? Let's like brainstorm a list. And what are things that feel dangerous, but actually aren't going to school, you know, and, and breaking it down. And what are some things I can do when I feel that feeling, but it's not dangerous? Well, the different calming strategies, thoughts they can think that help to calm them down. I'm going to go a slightly different direction, but the same direction, because that's we're playing good cop, bad cop. Um, Candace, your child's behavior is always, a, there's always a reason for it. And unfortunately, that reason might not be helpful because very often the, the child doesn't know what the reason is in the moment. So one of these things is to, is to, to build up this one, acknowledge the feeling before it's happening or, or in, in a safe space. So acknowledge that they, they are feeling scared about something or they're feeling fearful about something or they're getting overwhelmed. Acknowledge it and then try and work out in that moment, if it's possible, in a safe space, what's going on. Because very often it's the, it's the what ifs going on all ahead. What yeah. if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if that, mm-hmm. this happens? Or... I don't know what's going to happen, and that's really scary. And and look, I still it happens to me once. You, every hit, the, day. you hit the nail on the head with the what ifs. He's the king of what ifs. He goes yeah. down that rabbit hole, and he's got such a vivid imagination that uh, you you swear the apocalypse was coming. But it, it's getting him out of that that mental spin. It's very hard, and it is it is really hard. And it's 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 actually probably going to be a little while of, of work, but if you can start, little steps will help. And and Kara's point about, you know, tigers, 
tigers in the jungle are scary, and so therefore we run quickly. Like, like a, get, get that, make it a really um, vivid, this is scary, but there's there's no tigers in schools. There's actually nothing scary in a, in a school at all. There's nothing that's going to hurt you at school. Make that connection and then start bringing them closer and closer and closer so there is a judgment of, you know, this is scary, this is not so scary, this is really scary, this is really not scary. And start thinking about the things they are looking forward to. Oh, you're looking forward to seeing this person and this person. And, you know, so they can visualize that as well. Because if they're spending all their time visualizing all the uh, terrible, fearful, what if situations, we want to sort of redirect the power of their imagination to to imagining the good things as well. And if there is a child there that does get along with your child, maybe like talking to the parents there and saying, you know, hopefully we can meet up before school in the playground. Yeah, we have a safe. So he had a very, very rough time entering JK in Ontario, um, <laughs> to say the least. And we ended up putting him into the second year of SK was COVID. So we, we put him into a private learning pod and then we and we started him in a Montessori school. So he's not in the public system. We gave up immediately, which is probably bad. But, you know, we we figured let's get him into a smaller classroom with a consistent teacher and a in a tighter community. And it, and it has been a blessing. He knows who his teacher is. He knows what his classroom looks like. He knows who 50% of his classmates are next year. We even had establish a, a safe friend who would wait for us at the door and he'd walk in with that friend because, you know, parents weren't allowed to take them into the school, right? Because of COVID. So COVID has definitely made it more complicated. Um, took about six months of that last year and, we, and he finally started going in on his own. And I, I think I had a drink <laughs> that day. <laughs> I think I went at eight in the morning and got myself a big glass of wine to celebrate. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so you should self care. Yeah. But it, it's, uh, you know, at some point he may have to go back to the public system because money doesn't grow on trees and, you know, everybody's struggling and, uh, it's it's learning how to deal with that. The, I I call it the chaos, the chaos factor, which you you do get a lot of that in the public school. So I really like the tip about maybe getting them into the classroom before everyone gets in there. Um, that was really good, Julie, because that gives him that quiet space to sort of get grounded and get into the environment. So thank you for yeah. that. And that was really helpful. Actually, especially if you can ask the teacher to give them a task. Yeah. Special like, responsibilities. Yes. Or um, my son it... needs to know that my son needs to know that his teacher has his back. So, you know, as long as he knows that his teacher is going to be there and is going to um, not protect him, but is he's in grade, he's going into grade eight now. So it's like kind of, they just have to be sort of buddies as well as teachers because he needs to know that he has that relationship, that confident, comfortable relationship because he had a lot of bad experiences with teachers when he was younger. So I think that really helped him to have that one-on-one -on -one time in the classroom. The teacher didn't always pay attention to him, but he was allowed to be in there and have some time. And that made him feel a bit special too. No, that's good. Thank you. Thank you all. I've, I just need to move past the dread for his exact words the night before anything is I'm dreading tomorrow. And I try to redirect and I try to point out like, oh, well, the last time you went to camp, you had such a great time and you made a friend and you built a robot and so the redirecting and trying to get him into a more positive mindset is, is a big factor. And for those parents that I see that are having their kids go into JK, um, 
I remember that first day and I was overwhelmed. And so I can only imagine how my child was feeling. So I think the tips that everybody's given here today are really good ones. So thank you. It is a lot. Thank you. Candice, sorry, last time, Julie, I promise. Promise is my last one. (laughs) We could be here all night. I know we could. I'm just (laughs) trying to keep us on track. (laughs) My boss is laughing at me. Um, Candace, always remember that little thing you said to us about um, he had a, a buddy who walked in the school and after about six months he did it by himself. Remember that point. Remember that with the supports and with the time he got the confidence to do that, everything's going to be like that too. It'll, it'll, it will come. But you just may need to remember that moment too. Remember that drink you you had <laughs> and you know what you can always call bruce because he's on <laughs> he's on our uh he's, he'll be on our uh phone number too so if you need a little re- reinforcement re- or encouragement you can call dom and bruce and they'll uh they'll have your back we'll, we'll have a glass with you yeah. <laughs> well i think nine o'clock uh bruce's time puts me in at noon so that's totally acceptable yeah. <laughs> five, o'clock five o'clock somewhere it's five o'clock somewhere it's all um good. jamie's made a great point here we also use this for my son some schools have sensory rooms in their cert office as well the kids are always free to go to the sensory room and there's always either the cert or an ea in the room to supervise i think that's a little tricky in the tdsv i'm not sure they uh, that's where i am i'm not sure if there's a lot of extra um but certainly um Certainly, uh, we had our secretary at the school was given a box of sensory support. So if kids needed to go and have a quiet space, they could sit with her. I don't know. Maybe you provide your your administration in your office with some stuff. And, and you know, talk with your child about quiet activities they can do when they need as a break and then let the teacher know, like you're sending in a book or you're sending in some coloring sheets or whatever it is. I think. Well, and, and I've found that music therapy helps because he's very sensitive to music and so when a teacher is willing to play classical music or calming spa music or something in the background he really tunes into that so and oh, that, that definitely that let the teacher know that that's great i highly recommend bruce's website <laughs> <laughs> i know yes, I'm plugging it. Yes, I'm plugging it. but seriously okay i'm gonna mute you now candace thank you so much thank you um uh, yeah. And also, yes, kids can have sensory equipment in their classroom. Thank you for that, Jamie. What, um, so maybe can you guys talk a little bit about that, about what maybe parents, how they go about sending things to school for their child with respect to sensory stuff? Dominique? <laughs> sure, I'll go. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to talk, I'm going to speak on behalf of a parent's perspective. So I'm taking my professional hat off right now. <laughs> For every child that has a, a, who's coded, so who has a diagnosis and who has an IEP or an IPP or IPRC, there is a certain amount of dollars allocated per student. And how that money is spent, I have no idea. But essentially, when I fight for whether it's um, fidgets or uh, specialized equipment at school, um, I say, well, you know, he's, he's, there's an, there's an allowance for my kid and that's how you should, you know, this would benefit him. This is what I would like to see in the classroom, or this is, you know, um, tools that would help him navigate through whatever it is, whatever the, I, you know, the, 
um, the um, navigate through whatever his anxiety is or, or help him better learn. So that's always, I always keep that in my back pocket because I, I learned uh, once upon a time that this is true and um, well, in Ontario anyways, and, um, and I use it a lot. Um, and now the teachers know pretty much that that's my fight and that's what I'm going to stick to. So they've been very open. And I think what works for me is, you know, I consulted with my OT um, for both for both children. And um, I'd like to I'd like to think that our suggestions combined are, are tools that we can recommend for our kids to have at school. So small fidgets, something that they can keep in their pocket, especially for my youngest one, because He's well aware um, of his um, anxiety, and he, but he doesn't want to be identified, if you will, within a classroom. So he will have um, those little spectra. They're like magnets, little, um, little, little, like, what are they? They're like um, little barbarians, but they're, they're magnets and they come in this little cube and he's got that. And so his pockets are like, <laughs> they're so worn out, but he's got his hand in his pocket and he's playing with this fidget. So it's, small enough for him to be able to use. Um, then of course there's, you know, um, some other equipment that is in the spec ed uh, class when they do pull them out for whatever activity, just to help him with that one-on-one, -on -one. uh, like the, the, you know, equip the, the, uh, bike, the, um, stationary bike or, uh, the elastic band around a chair to help with all of that. But I think what's important to start off with is ask them, ask them what helps them feel better, whether it's a weighted blanket, whether it's a fidget spinner, whether it's some music, um, you know, to see what works for them. And then don't be afraid to ask, ask the teachers, ask, can we provide this to them? Um, is this something that the school would be prepared to offer my, my son on, you know, during class or, you know, Ask them first if they have this equipment. If they don't, then ask them if there's a budget for it. And if they don't, um, that would be principal discretionary funds. Teachers don't get classroom budgets <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> there you go. So essentially, you know, I'm always prepared to, and I have paid out of pocket. I've used my kids' funding for these little things that are ridiculously expensive, but nonetheless, they help them. And that's that's the key. And that's what we want in the end. We just want them to be able to go through a day and give them the tools that they need to be able to stay focused and, and happy. So fidgets be part of an IEP. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. totally right. Okay, so, so then there's no, so even if, if, if you provide them yourself, you can say my son must be able to chew gum in class or my son needs to have an opportunity to use his fidget. Mm -hmm. it, 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 don't say must. <clears throat> no, because there's, there's always a, we always have to be, make sure we're open to a negotiation, this sort of, sort of thing. Um, for instance, Universally in Alberta, you're not allowed to wear a hat in school. Um, in Calgary, it's because they think it you make, makes you part of a, um, uh, a gang. My son is so, his body temperature regulation is so bad, he has to wear a toque in summer. And so it was a, he has to be allowed to wear a hat in school. And if they said no, it's like, okay, then he needs to have something to keep him warm. If there's a reason for a short period of time to wearing a hat, that, that's kind of okay. For my daughter, part of her uh, IPP was that she was allowed to listen to music during exams. But if it's disturbing another student, she's not allowed to do that. There has to be something else because it, it's also recognition, it's a shared space. So 
it's we need to stand up for our kids. We need to make sure that we've got giving them the tools. But it's also there has to be a recognition they're in a shared space and it needs to be it, you know it needs to be shared. It's a community. Yeah. And yes. Jamie, it's a good point that fidgets have become toys as well. So you do have to be sensitive to that, I think. But also, you know, if a child needs one, they need one. So I make it very clear in my classroom, you know, this is how it's used when it's a tool versus a toy. And you can teach that at home too. You can pass on the rules to the teacher. You know, what does it look like when it's used as a tool versus as a toy? And obviously if it's, if it's something that is very distracting, then it's a time for a conversation about, well, is there a different tool that can be used in place of this? Um, or when when is a good time to use this tool? Some tools are better in a work period. Some tools are better during, uh, you know, a, a lesson where a teacher is talking. So you can kind of map out that or have the teacher talk with your child about what works for different times. And obviously it has to work for your child first. That's the most important thing. Thank you. I'm just reading through the comments again, but... Um... Some comments about gum here. <laughs> gum is amazing. I like um, I like bravery suckers, Candace. That's an awesome idea. When you do something brave, you get a sucker. Um, fuzzy things, yes, fuzzy things. We love our fuzzy things. Um, we do have fidgets at Autism Canada. You can check them out on our website if you like. We do have a fidget, or we do have a sensory support kit that we we sell actually, um, but it does have some great uh, items in it for for kids and for adults. Um, okay. I think that covers all of the comments and questions. It's 8.45. So let us, about 10 or so minutes left, any points we haven't hit on yet. We've talked about self-care. We've talked about, um, sort of getting your routine back in order. We've talked about some of those questions about getting in touch with school. Do you recommend reaching out to teachers in the first week? Uh, I know you said, Maybe not a phone call, but a letter from your child more specifically than from you in the first week? I think a self-advocacy tool from your child is really effective. It can also go alongside with an email from a parent. Um, uh, but I think when it comes from the child, like it just it does tug on tug on your heartstrings. Uh, and I think that's important. And um, but some other things you can you can do in that first week is obviously like you want the teacher to understand your child's sensory profile and their needs, how they listen, types of activities that engage them, their strengths, um, activities that uh, like they find calming. Um, and then and then certain routine things like if they're if they're of an age where it's um, they're expected to copy down the agenda, but they have like fine motor issues or it just takes them that much longer than everyone else. Asking if they if there's a way a, a photo can be posted on the Google Classroom or if your child has a phone, if they can just take a photo instead of writing the agenda. Like the main thing is they have that information, not that we make it a task, you know. So just thinking through some of the things that might be good to talk with the teacher about, like how often your child can have breaks and what these look like and what's worked for other teachers. Right. Dom, Bruce, any thoughts on that? Ara's really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, do have, I do have something that, you know, I've been listening to um, some of the, we're reading some of the questions and listening to some of our, um, our guests. And one of the things that I need to recommend, and I know that essentially when our kids are young, uh, structure is always so important. And what we forget as parents is, you know, because 
building a structured environment for our child provides them with a calming, um, safe, uh, you know, environment where it alleviates any anxiety or it helps with, with the anxiety piece and stress. But life is about sabotage. And Candace, you'd mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that, you know, your son is a what if, what if, what if. What we can't work on as parents, what is very difficult for us is to predict the future. And as they get older, we need to sabotage this mm-hmm. whole idea of structure because life is full of chaos and mess. And what's important is that we provide our kids with these tools to navigate through sabotage, um, to, to be able to say, okay, well, you know, let's not worry about the what ifs. If it does happen, here's a tool on how to, how to move forward from that. And one of the things that, because I have two very, very, very structured and predictable kids, um, my oldest especially is very regimented with routine, but what we've done, and it took us, it took us a while, but we got it right. What worked best. And this is just mom to moms and, and dads. Um, we created our own board game and it was, they, they both kids love board games, but it was our own board game. And the cue cards, when you pick up a cue cards, they're case scenarios. And by playing this, they get bonus points if they provide you with the right kind of answer on how to navigate a specific situation. So this game has lasted us for eight years, nine years now. And it's a matter of adding new questions to the game and adding new scenarios and and giving them like an ABC choice where they can they can this is, it's a visual um, tool and it's something that they'll enjoy doing and you're spending time with them and you're teaching them the tools they need to navigate through so many different situations. And I think that by doing that, we are able to teach our kids pretty much anything. We can teach them and work with them to navigate through anything. Sometimes it takes time, but it's such a great tool. And I kind of have to mention that because it's one of the best things that's worked for me. And my kids, both kids. I love teaching with board games and scenarios. And what would you do if, yeah, it's so great. (laughs) It's so fun. It's so fun. It's so cool. What a smart idea. Yeah. It's all wrinkled up and, and, you know, but it's still there. We still play it and we have like family game night and Corey and I, my husband and I will put questions together and they're random. And of course the age gap, there's seven years between the two. Um, but you know, when my oldest started puberty, this was like such an important part and we didn't know how to have this conversation with them. So he's like, okay, let's, you know, let's create cue cards and social, you know, social um, scenarios that would, you know, teach them how to navigate through some really difficult moments. So this game has lasted us for a long time and it will continue to last us for a long time. So it's just a recommendation I have for parents out there. And it's important with that game, which of course is a really good idea to give the kids agency that they can add their own cue card. If they're mm-hmm. struggling with something, this is a good way for them to say, yeah. I'm struggling with this. So I'm going to put this into the game. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. I know that social thinking has some board games that are similar, like where it's scenario based um, for different ages. So you might want to check out the social thinking website if, if you're not comfortable making your own. Um, Asa, Dom made her own game. So that's why she, um, she made it up herself. So Dom, what does it look like? It looks like cue cards on one side, it's a scenario and on the other side, it's a, it's a, yeah. So it's just like your, well, it's it's like a snake. It looks like snakes and ladders. Um, 
And if you go down, um, if you go down a ladder or a snake, it's going to be a more difficult question, sometimes a new question. If you're going up, it's going to be a question that you know they're going to get the answer right. So it empowers them, right? So you know that it's something they've already achieved and you're going to ask. And half the time, the questions I'm reading are not the questions I'm asking. I'm just trying to empower them in the game. And it's important because they can win very easily. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's it's family time together. It's a teaching tool that has really, really worked. And, um, and it's a game changer. Yeah. Well, on that note, on that, <laughs> it is now 8.53 and uh, we are out of time basically for tonight, but we will be meeting again, same time, 7.30 p.m. EST on, September, excuse me, September the 30th. No. to talk no. about August, 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 August. Sorry, August 30th. Oh my God, August 30th. I'm going to mention that. <laughs> to talk about self-advocacy, accommodations, routines, and in my house, the dreaded homework. <sighs> so please come back. Um, in the meantime, if you have questions, you're welcome to email them. I'm julie at autismcanada.org. Feel free to send me questions. Um, or you can email info at autismcanada.org and Bruce and Dom will be there to answer your questions. Kara's website um, is karadiamond.com. And I'm going to send out an email tomorrow with a link um, to this recording, as well as a bunch of the things we've talked about tonight so that you can have them all. And um I just want to thank our amazing panel. I love, 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 love doing these sessions with this group because they are so knowledgeable. And um, and the thing I love about it is that, you know, they really get it and they know how the kids feel and they know how the parents feel and they can really put it together and share that information. I truly do think we could talk about it for hours. So thank, <laughs> yeah. thank you all of you for being here. Um. And thank you, Julie. Oh, <laughs> I'm just here to let She's people know. Um, so as I said, Dom and Bruce are available. They're our family services team. If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you need support, if someone you know needs support, please, please, please. Um, they can email us or they can check out our website anytime. Um, and again, thank you for being here. And we hope you'll all be here with us on August 30th. Next Tuesday. <laughs> yep. Next week. Next week. Thanks, Thanks for everyone. your great questions, too. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Stay tuned for more episodes of Sharing the Spectrum and Autism Canada podcast. The beautiful music you heard is from Bruce Pethrick. Bruce is a neurodiverse musician and friend of Autism Canada. You can check out more of his music on his website at brucepetrick.com. Our executive producer is Barbara Patton. Julie Perkis is our producer. Additional thanks to the Autism Canada team, including Tafari Anthony, Shannon Selinski, Dominique Payment, Mariana Curick, and Earl Selinski. For more information about Autism Canada, don't forget to visit us at autismcanada.org. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.